Hello all, and warmest welcomes to the latest episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. I'm Paul, the creator and host of the show, and thanks very much for joining me as ever, guys. It means the world. I trust that you're all bang on as this episode finds you. I'm on incredibly busy times here at the show right now, not least by creating this trilogy that you're about to hear the second part of, but also in the past few weeks, having found time to fit in writing, recording, and releasing the latest Patreon supporters bonus exclusive episode, number four. And as you hear this episode, number five's now in the bag too, and ready to go for the 1st of June. All this on top of working, having a normal life, you know, is crazy busy. A note to the very kind Patreon supporters of the show, I've now actually made the reward tiers a bit more accessible to folk while still offering the same rewards, so it's cheaper in other words. So if any supporters are interested in an extra four episodes up to now, amongst other things, links to the Patreon page can be found in the show notes along with the social media and contact details for the show. I also urge any existing supporters to please have a check and make sure that if you still wish to support that you amend your monthly contributions to the new levels. As I say, I've made it cheaper, guys. Thanks very much to my latest Patreon supporters. That's Julie Carrillo, Alan Strickland, Sky Harvey, Lewis Pierce, and Faye. It's very much appreciated all. Um, It helps make the show, and I hope that you enjoy the bonus episodes available. I was quite pleased also to get behind a worthwhile cause championed by the hosts of the podcast Nothing Rhymes With Murder recently and I've sent them some stuff to be included in a prize draw for a fundraiser they are organising that will be held on the 16th of June at the True Crime Podcast Meetup in London, and it will be live-streamed the draw as well, apparently. The fundraiser is in support of a very worthwhile cause, the Joyful Heart Foundation, and their campaign End the Backlog, which calls out for the backlog of untested rape kits to be tested. As was highlighted recently with the arrest of the Golden State Killer, People can be caught even so long later, and this campaign is to show that victims of sexual violence do matter, and the cases are still important and do matter. I know that a range of podcasts have given stuff and merchandise towards this for a prize draw, and I was more than happy to add some stuff to this too. A link to the page and information about donating and entering the draw can be found with the show notes this week as well, which get ever longer each week they seem to. I've also been happy to be involved as part of a set of podcast trading cards that a few folks are getting behind and joining in with that are being created and I look forward to seeing those when they're made because there are some absolutely brilliant shows that are involved with this and um, yeah it's going to be something really special so I'm looking forward to that. It's promo time now of course as always and this week it's my pleasure to bring you a couple of great ones Murder Mile and Nordic True Crime but don't take my word for it take the words of the hosts themselves over to first Mike and then to Lisette and Dave. Welcome to the Murder Mile True Crime Podcast. My name is Michael and each week I shall take you on a guided walk of hundreds of untold, unsolved and long forgotten murders all set within one square mile. Proving that if you dig deep enough you'll find that on every street, in every city, there's a killer on every corner, death on every doorstep, and homicide in every home. Murder Mile is investigated using original police files and eyewitness testimony, with authentic sounds recorded at the murder location itself, and is accompanied by photos, videos, and maps to make you feel like you're actually there. A new episode of the Murder Mile True Crime Podcast is released every Thursday on almost every podcast platform. Thank you. Enjoy your day. Welcome to Nordic True Crime. We are a weekly podcast covering a wide range of crimes from Europe's most northern countries. So if you're after a smorgasbord 
of real crime from the dark and frozen regions of the Nordics? Then give us a try. Find us on iTunes or at nordictruecrime.podbean.com on Twitter and Facebook at Nordic True Crime or on your podcast provider. And as we say in Sweden, ta hand om dig. Excellent stuff or what, eh, guys? I constantly enjoy Mike's show. It's always one of my must-listens, and I've thoroughly enjoyed his latest multi-part episodes concerning the Blackout Ripper case. It's very overlooked and unfamiliar, that one, and it's fascinating too. Now, Nordic True Crime is a relatively new podcast, uh, but I like what I hear very much, and I'm intrigued by Scandinavian cases anyway, so I find this a well-worthy addition to the already established True Crime Finland and True Crime Sweden. Both highly recommended. So this episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast is part two of what I shall call the One-Legged Train Spotter Trilogy. I know that's a bit of a mouthful, but stick with me here, and hopefully by the conclusion of this and the next episode, all will become clear. As this is part two of the three, if you haven't caught up with the first part, then I advise you to go back and listen to Julie's story from the previous episode. If you listen to that first, or else this episode won't make as much sense as it should because it will refer to events mentioned in episode 1. If you are all caught up, then please join the True Crime Enthusiast for the second part of the One-Legged Train Spotter trilogy, Stephanie's Story. In 1992, Stephanie Slater was 25 years old and was the adopted daughter of Warren and Betty Slater, single and living with her parents in a modest semi-detached house, number 54, in the Newton Gardens area of the West Birmingham suburb of Great Bar. Stephanie had done well in school and had left with a number of qualifications and had started her inroad into the world of employment as a trainee hairdresser at Edgar's Hair Salon in West Bromwich. This had lasted just a month before she decided that she wasn't cut out for hairdressing, excuse the pun there, and she was placed on a youth training scheme at a local business called Toby Sounds, where she worked as a clerk. A year later, she began working at Hayes Spires Estate Agents in West Bromwich, before the firm was taken over by Prudential Property Services, and Stephanie was promoted to the role of negotiator. As someone pleasant and good with people, it was a job that she enjoyed thoroughly and she was very good at, and she was to stay in this role for the next three years. In 1991, she resigned from here and began working at a better paid, more beneficial and closer to home job at Shipways Estate Agents at 905 Walsall Road, Great Bar. Again, Stephanie excelled at her job with a professional yet warm personality and not long after joining the agency, she'd been promoted again and given the use of a company car that became her pride and joy, a royal blue Ford Escort that she nicknamed Gizmo after the Mogwai in the film Gremlins. I wonder if she could put petrol in it uh, after midnight. This was a job that Stephanie was happy at, and she got on well with the rest of the small team of staff that made up the shipway's office. The office manager was 34-year-old Kevin Watts, 33-year-old financial advisor David Thompson, 20-year-old junior staff member Jane Cashman, and 54-year-old office secretary Sylvia Baker made up the rest of the shipway's staff. At about 4.30pm on the afternoon of Tuesday the 14th of January 1992, Sylvia took a telephone call in the office from a man calling himself Mr R Southwall and claiming he was from Wakefield in West Yorkshire. He was making inquiries as to available properties in the £60,000 bracket in the Calshot Road area of Grey Bar specifying that he wanted gas-connected properties and ones with a garage also that he intended to renovate and then sell on. He asked Sylvia to sort a few details of properties that met this criteria for the next morning where he would be calling into the office in person at 9am. Sylvia, who had already given a name to Mr Southwall as to the friendly professional that she was, took down the details that he gave her and just as the conversation was ending, she recalled him saying, Sylvia, you won't let me down, will you? 
a total of about 20 suitable properties were selected for him to peruse through when he arrived, and these were all placed into a brown envelope marked Mr. Southwall. The following morning at 9am, Mr. Southwall arrived at the shipway's office and asked for Sylvia by name. He was remembered by Jane Cashman as being scruffy in appearance, and she also remembered his solid build, his piercing eyes set by thick-rimmed glasses, and dark hair that looked almost as if it had just been dyed. Sylvia was on the telephone with a client at the time he came into the office, but she passed Southwall the envelope containing the selected properties and told him that if he wished to view any of them, he was to telephone the office and they could arrange this. He then took the envelope and left. Six days later, on Monday the 20th of January, Southwall again telephoned Shipways, this time inquiring about viewing a property that was for sale, a vacant house at 153 Turnbury Road. He spoke to Kevin Watts and a provisional appointment to view the property was made for 10.30am on Wednesday the 22nd of January. Southwall then asked if Kevin Watts would be showing him around, to which Kevin replied, No, not me. I have two other appointments. It will probably be Stephanie Slater. Now two women who lived in Turnbury Road, Violet Darling and Diane Medford, that Wednesday morning both saw a man stood outside number 153 at about 9.30am that both women were later able to give an excellent description of. He was aged between 40 and 50 years old, with straight collar length swept back dark hair, solidly built, wearing thick black rimmed glasses and appeared scruffy and unkempt. He was hanging about outside the front door of number 153, and in his right hand he appeared to be carrying a clipboard or envelope of some kind. He was there for a considerable period of time, and about 30 minutes later Diane had noticed a young woman enter the house with the same man who closed the door behind them. It was Stephanie Slater meeting her client to show him around the property. Inside the house, Stephanie showed Southwall around each room in turn, and got the feeling that he was left distinctly unimpressed with the house. She was also left feeling uneasy with this client. It seemed as though he was deliberately avoiding looking her in the eye, and he would also touch nothing in the property. In fact, he went out of his way not to. As they wandered through the upstairs of the property, Southwall called her into the bathroom, inquiring as to what a certain feature on the wall was for. As she peered up at what she could only see to be a hook on the wall, she heard Southwall say, All right, from behind her, and when she turned around, she saw that he had his hands raised in a threatening manner and was holding a knife. Before Stephanie could scream, she was forced backwards into the bath, and as she tried to lift herself out, she was told to shut up, be quiet, and put her legs into the bath. She had a knife held to her throat, and in response to this, she begged, Don't kill me, please don't kill me. Please remember I'm human. Told that she wouldn't be harmed if she cooperated, Southwall then tied her wrists with a length of washing line and then placed a pair of dark glasses over her eyes. She was then ordered out of the bath, which she managed to do but with some difficulty, and then had another length of washing line fastened around her neck. Fearing that she was either going to be strangled or perhaps hanged, Southwall instead told the terrified girl that they were going down the stairs, and gently but firmly guided her downstairs. At the bottom, he sat her down on the step, and taking Stephanie's own scarf, tore it in half and used it to make a blindfold for her. He then gagged her and led her outside to a waiting car. He placed her into the passenger seat, which had been reclined to a 175 degree angle, then used a further length of washing line to bind her feet, as well as to secure her to the seat. He then covered her with a blanket and placed a lightweight jacket on top of this. A heavy toolbox was then placed onto her lap to prevent her moving. So if she wasn't terrified enough right now, the tip of the knife that Southwall placed against her stomach was enough to keep her frozen with fear, with him saying, Don't make any moves or I'll use this. The car was then started and the man drove off with Stephanie as his captive. During the journey, she was aware that the car smelled of damp rags and fuel, as though it was a work van or painter and decorator's vehicle, 
she was also aware of a Beach Boys cassette playing in the tape player. After travelling for an estimated 40 minutes, the car was stopped and the engine was turned off. Southwall then turned to Stephanie and said, You probably know that you've been kidnapped. Everything will be alright if you don't cause any trouble. You will not die if you don't cause any trouble. Do you understand? The terrified girl could only simply say yes, and then she was asked her name, to which she replied, Stephanie Slater. She was told to call her kidnapper Bob. The jacket and blanket were then removed from her face, the gag was removed, and the kidnapper, we shall refer to him as that from now on, told her that they were going to make a tape for her boss. He brought out a tape recorder, and then got her to record a message that he dictated to her, which through her obvious fear took her three attempts to get correct. Once they'd done this, the kidnapper then wrote on an envelope and got Stephanie herself to lick down the seal, obviously mindful of leaving his own DNA traces. Back at the shipway's office at about 12 o'clock, Sylvia Baker received a telephone call. The following conversation is reproduced. Sylvia Good morning, Shipways Estate Agents. Can I help you? Caller. Can I speak to Mr. Watts? Sylvia. I'm sorry, he's not in the office at the moment. Caller. Who's in charge? Sylvia. I'm here. Can I help you? Caller. Listen, Sylvia. Stephanie Slater. She's been kidnapped. There will be a ransom letter in the post tomorrow. All right. Phone the police and she'll die. The caller then hung up. Sylvia managed to trace Kevin Watts from the appointment that she knew he would be at at that time. I mean, remember, this is long before the days of commonplace mobile phones. And although Kevin was sceptical when he was told, he asked her to ring directory inquiries and to check the telephone number given by Mr. Southwall, who he remembered had been the appointment Stephanie had been out to see that morning. He then returned to the office while Sylvia did this. By the time he arrived back, it had been established that the number was false. It was later determined to be a telephone box on the A1 at Blythe in Nottinghamshire. Kevin Watts and David Thompson then drove back to 153 Turnbury Road and found Stephanie's car parked by the roadside there. The house was open and although both men made a thorough search of the property and garden, there was no sign of Stephanie. What did alarm Kevin and David was that the set of house keys and Stephanie's own car keys were left on top of the unit there. Securing the house, both men headed back to the shipway's office and contacted police. Uniformed police were dispatched to Turnbury Road and upon entering the premises noted a spot of blood at the top of the stairs. This, along with Kevin and Sylvia's serious and obviously distressed testimony, was enough to convince police that this was genuine and this was a serious attempt to extort money from Shipways and its parent company, the Royal Life Estate Group of Companies. As a result, an investigation codenamed Operation Kaftan, led by Detective Chief Superintendent Tom Farr, was launched, and whilst house-to-house inquiries began in the Turnbury Road area, which was to provide police with the descriptions from Violet Darling and Diane Medford, a tape recording device was installed at the Shipways office, and hoping they'd be able to trace the call, police were left waiting for the kidnapper to make contact. So whilst all this was underway, Stephanie had been driven for many miles and had lost all sense of direction through fear and fatigue. Eventually, after many hours and several stops, the vehicle turned down a rough sloping track, stopped, and the engine was turned off. She was moved out of the car and was ushered into a large, damp, cold building where she was sat in a hard wooden chair. The kidnapper ordered her not to scream or cry out, adding, Not that anybody's going to hear you scream out here. Stephanie's kidnapper then made her change her clothes and eventually she could keep on her t-shirt, underwear and boots but was made to place on a pair of dirty denim jeans, a pair of heavy woolen socks a woolen round-necked sleeveless jumper and a cardigan, as well as another pair of socks over her hands. Her hair was tied up tightly in a ponytail made from the remnants of her scarf that had been torn up earlier to make a blindfold for her. 
handcuffs were then placed around her wrists and her ankles, and she was linked to a chain that was bolted to a strong point in the wall behind her. She was then retied and made to sit back into the wooden chair. Her kidnapper then left her and returned some minutes later with a bag of chips for her from a nearby chippy. After she'd eaten these, he then helped her over to a wide-rimmed bucket filled with disinfectant that she was to use as a toilet for a period of captivity, and when she was done with this, she was secured for the night into a construction ready-built for her captivity. Stephanie was made to shuffle down into a coffin-like structure inside a wheelie bin on its side, which contained a mattress and that she could only get into by moving downwards at an angle. Once she had moved downwards a considerable distance, her wrists were secured to a metal bar so her hands were directly in line with her face. She was then told, Don't pull down on the bar because there are boulders above you. If you pull on the bar, you'll pull them down and crush yourself. No shouting, no screaming, I don't want to hear any noise from you. When I open this door in the morning, I want to see the gag is still on you and the blindfold is still on. He then went on further to explain to the terrified girl there was a wire in the box with electrodes attached to it and if she moved during the night she would get an electric shock and be killed. He then left Stephanie alone in the premises for she couldn't move and she had no idea where she was. Can you imagine the fear that must have ran through her mind? Isn't that absolutely appalling and callous? That's horrendous. The following morning, a sorting officer at the Royal Mail Sorting Office in Great Bar intercepted a letter addressed to shipways, which was immediately seized by detectives who were stationed there on the lookout for correspondence from the kidnapper. The brown envelope contained an unsigned typewritten letter and an audio cassette tape. The letter contained grammatical errors and spelling mistakes, and it read as follows. Your employee has been kidnapped and will be released for a ransom of £175,000. With a little luck, he should be okay and unharmed. To prove this fact, you will in the next day or so receive a recorded message from him. He will be released on Friday 31st of January 1992, provided 1. On Wednesday 29th of January, a ransom of £175,000 is paid and no extension to this date will be granted. 2. The police are not informed in any way until he has been released. On Wednesday 29th at 4pm, you will receive a short recorded message from the hostage. To prove he's still alive and okay, he will repeat the first news item that was on the 10am Radio 2 News. He will then give further instructions. A second and more detailed message will be given at 5.05pm the same day. Your watch must be synchronised with 5pm pips on Radio 2. The location of the second call will be given at 4pm, so transport with a radio must be available. Kevin Watts, in brackets, if not the hostage, must be the person to receive all messages and carry the money to the appointed place. However, please note that all messages will be pre-recorded and no communication or negotiations can be made. The letter went on to give specifics about the denominations that the bundles of notes should be broken into, before ending with the statement in bold capital letters, You have been warned, his life is in your hands. When the cassette tape was played, it confirmed beyond any doubt that this was no hoax. The frightened voice that played was confirmed as being that of Stephanie Slater, and it said the following, This is Stephanie Slater. The time is now 11.45. I can assure you I'm okay and unharmed. Providing these instructions are carried out, I will be released on Friday 31st of January. By Wednesday, you will need an ordnance survey map between Blackburn and Burnley. Kevin Watts must be the person that acts as courier and uses car. Sylvia or Jane may be passengers to act as guides, but only these two people must be in the car. The passengers must never leave the car. Next Wednesday at every point, clear instructions will be given. The boot of the car must be open for 30 seconds. Money must not be marked in any way whatsoever or contain any device whatsoever. Royal Life Estates had agreed without any hesitation that they would put up any ransom fee for Stephanie's safe return 
and again police were left waiting for the kidnapper to make contact. A telex was sent to other police forces across the country, and as soon as it was received by West Yorkshire police, detectives hunting the killer of Julie Dart were soon on the telephone to the operation Kaftan. Just a short conversation later, and it was convinced that the man who had kidnapped and murdered Julie Dart, and who had unsuccessfully blackmailed British Rail, had now surfaced again in Birmingham, and this time at least, his captive was still alive. A news embargo was also requested by West Midlands police, to which the press agreed. Police desperately wanted Stephanie back alive, and they didn't want to risk a kidnapper killing her if he got wind through the press that police were involved. Stephanie awoke just before 8am on the morning of January 23rd, having spent her first night in captivity in what must be unimaginable circumstances. Terrified, not knowing where you were, not daring to move or make a sound for fear of injury or death, and thinking that any moment her abductor could come back and kill her. She was still blindfolded, still gagged, and her limbs had seized up due to being incapacitated, and the extreme cold in the structure. She then heard a door open and a radio being switched on, tuned to a station which she soon recognised to be Radio 2, and then she heard the door behind her head open, and standing there was her kidnapper. He unfastened her wrists and removed her from the box and onto a mattress, then massaged her elbows to increase the circulation in them. He gave her porridge and a cup of sweet tea, then removed the cuffs from her ankles and instead placed a chain around them. He then replaced the gag and told her to be quiet, so she lay down on the mattress covered with a blanket. Stephanie lay there for several hours listening to the various sounds, and she concluded that she was being kept in some sort of business premises. She heard music from Radio 2, which was always on, she heard different voices, and a large heavy door opening and closing periodically, as though it was on a sliding rail. A further door had a doorbell similar to a cash register sound, and a telephone that also had an old-fashioned ringing sound to it as well. There was also a dog on the premises, which a kidnapper told her was a disobedient six-month-old Alsatian bitch, and one that he would shout at whenever the dog whimpered or barked. After an hour or so, her kidnapper gave Stephanie some chocolate, helped her to use the toilet, and then removed her gag completely, instructing her to be very quiet and knowing that in her fear she would obey. He then cut the box that she'd been placed in into two parts returned with chips for a meal for his captive, and then she was placed back into the remnants of the box again, but this time given a quilt and a foam-filled pillow, and several chocolate bars. The kidnapper then told her he would be back in the morning, and Stephanie listened as he bustled about the premises for a few minutes, before she heard the heavy door slam shut and lock, and she was alone again. What she didn't realise was that the sounds of her kidnapper bustling about were of him placing several boards around the place that were spiked through with long nails that had been filed to a sharp point, that were specifically designed to incapacitate his captives should she get up and try to get free. There were several of these boards scattered about the premises, ready to maim her feet should she stumble about in the pitch dark. The following morning, Friday the 24th of January, Stephanie was allowed to wash and clean her teeth for the first time since her captivity, and then over the rest of that day and the following day, her kidnapper began to talk more with her. Gradually, she began to make a mental list of what she remembered about the man she was told to call Bob at his request. She noted that he didn't smoke and nor had she ever smelled alcohol on him. He had a quiet, calm yet firm voice for he never used profanity and he strongly pronounced the K's and T's at the end of words. He had what she considered a northern accent, and one that she came to decide was from somewhere in Yorkshire. From what she remembered seeing of her kidnapper, she remembered him to have hairy workmanlike hands and to appear middle-aged, well-built but shabby. He in turn asked her all sorts about her life, personal questions such as her address, hobbies, former occupations, his salary, details about her friends and boyfriends. Stephanie answered all of these truthfully, and unconsciously she was allowing her kidnapper to identify with her as a human being, 
not just an object worth £175,000 ransom fee. By speaking to him more and more, the kidnapper let details about himself unconsciously slip into the conversation as well. He would always refer in the plural, saying we all the time, and discussing a fellow kidnapper often, a mate of his who he spoke of with admiration and affection. Yet Stephanie never heard or was aware of any other person present throughout her captivity, and she came to believe that this was a fallacy. Stephanie learned through discussion that a kidnapper liked and watched Coronation Street, that he was interested in astronomy the same as she was, and that he had liked school where he'd been an athlete. Their conversation came around to travel, where Stephanie learned that her kidnapper had been a merchant seaman earlier in his life, and he'd visited Egypt amongst other places, somewhere that she wished to go herself. In what was to be a crucial and telling point later, trains, he advised her, were the best way to travel. Then in a perceived moment of compassion towards Stephanie, he told her, I hope this doesn't ruin your life. You're just a victim. You've done nothing wrong and you're going to go home. You could make a lot of money out of this and become a celebrity. Probably the last thing on Stephanie's mind right at that moment, wasn't it? Although nowadays it would probably be a real possibility that she may have ended up on Big Brother or in the bloody jungle or some other dross like that. Sad state of affairs. Each night after about 6pm and the usual meal of chips, or sometimes vegetable soup that was heated in a microwave on the premises, Stephanie was returned to the box and chained in, and she was left alone to think about her predicament. The longer that passed since she'd been kidnapped, she reasoned the better chance she had of remaining alive. She hoped that she'd begun to identify with her captor as a person, and this, she reckoned, would ultimately save her life. She tried desperately to work out where she was being held, and she came to the conclusion that it was a warehouse or workshop of some kind. It was roomy and open, very cold, and had a smell of oil and industrial products, almost like a garage would have. It was very quiet in the late afternoon each day, with no sounds or passing traffic or footfall, as though it was a premises in the middle of nowhere. Yet she dared not call the kidnapper's bluff and remove her blindfold, however. If she had done, I wonder if she would have remained as calm and level-headed had she seen the numerous spiked boards that were designed specifically to maim and rip her feet to shreds should she try to escape. I think not. On Sunday the 26th of January, Stephanie was told that she was to make a tape for her parents. She was told to memorise an item from the morning news on Radio 2, and then after she'd been given porridge for lunch, at about 1pm, she was given a message to read into the microphone. The day before, Stephanie had been asked what her father's football team was, to which she replied West Bromwich Albion. Once the message was recorded, the kidnapper placed her back into the box and shackled her, then left the premises. At 2.11pm, Warren Slater answered the ringing telephone in the Slater's front room and simultaneously pressed record on the police-installed tape recorder. A male caller asked if it was Mr Slater speaking, and when it was confirmed it was, he was told to just listen. The tape-recorded message Stephanie had recorded was as follows. Hello, it's Stephanie here. They've allowed me to make a message to you just to let you know that I'm alright. I'm unharmed. I honestly think West Bromwich Albion lost yesterday to Swansea 3-2. I want you to know that I love you. I'm not to say too much and whatever the outcome, I'll always love you. Look after the cats for me. Upon conclusion of this message, the caller rang off. The football result was correct, and this tape proved that at least until the previous evening, Stephanie was still alive. Both Warren and Betty Slater collapsed and cried after something that must be... You can't even imagine hearing something like that, can you? And after some moments composing themselves, and being soothed by Detective Constable Donna Cooper, who was one of the officers assigned to the Slater family for liaison, both were then to sign a statement verifying that the voice on the tape was indeed their daughter's voice. The call was later traced to a telephone box near the village of Ranby, near Doncaster, yet another location to place onto the ever-growing map of movements of this kidnapper. Following the call, the kidnapper had driven back to where Stephanie was being held, 
and told her that he had disguised his voice whilst talking to her father. He then stayed with her for several hours, in which Stephanie could hear him pottering about. Then she was secured in and placed into the box, and the kidnapper left. The following morning, Monday the 27th of January, Stephanie was again released from the box that she was placed in, and as had now become custom, exercised on the spot with her kidnapper watching her closely. She had done this since the beginning of her captivity to try to gain some movement and circulation into her limbs, which became stiff through the hours of imprisonment when she was fastened and the extreme cold of the premises at night. Her kidnapper gave her clean clothes and warm porridge to eat, a cup of sweet tea and plugged in another electric pan heater to try to keep her warm. To counteract these acts of humanity, her kidnapper then admitted he was going to have to cut up the wheelie bin now that he was intending to use to take her body away because she wasn't going to be killed now after all. Imagine how hearing that must have felt. That evening was particularly cold and when Stephanie was returned to the box as usual, lying in that cold dark place, she still wasn't as chilled as she had been when she heard those words. The following morning, Tuesday the 28th of January, the usual routine of release, exercise and breakfast occurred and then Stephanie was returned to the box. She was allowed out at about 1pm to use the toilet and was then returned because the kidnapper had to go out for the afternoon. He secured her and then placed the spike boards around, left the premises locking the door behind him. It was shortly before 5 o'clock that evening when Kevin Watts received a telephone call at Shipways. Jane had answered the telephone and placed the call through to him when a man's voice said, I want to speak to Kevin Watts quickly. When the call was placed through to him, Kevin immediately pressed the record button on the police taping device installed at the office. The man on the telephone asked if it was Kevin Watts, to which Kevin said it was. He was then asked, have you got the money? Despite knowing exactly who he was talking to, Kevin was stalling desperately for time to allow police the time they needed to trace the location where the kidnapper was calling from. The call then went on as follows. Caller, have you got the money? Kevin, who's this please? Caller, never mind, have you got the money ready for tomorrow? Kevin, for tomorrow? Caller, yes, have you got it? Kevin, I'm getting it, yes. Caller, three o'clock, you'll get a message at three o'clock. Kevin, a message at three o'clock. Caller, yes, and do you want a password? If you give me a word, I'll get her to repeat it to say she's all right. Kevin, yes, could I have a mother and father's Christian names, please? Caller, mother and father's Christian names, okay, three o'clock tomorrow. The call was then terminated. It was immediately traced to a telephone box near a small village named Gamston in Nottinghamshire, and Nottinghamshire Constabulary were informed and dispatched patrol cars to the location within minutes of the call, but the kidnapper had slipped away. He had actually passed the patrol cars driving to the location as he made his way back to where Stephanie was being held. When he arrived back where she was about 45 minutes after contacting shipways, he told the frightened girl that all was going to plan and that tomorrow he would be £175,000 better off and following this she would be released. He then told her that he was expecting a telephone call about the ransom drop from his mate and that his mate was a nasty piece of work and she was lucky that he was looking after her instead of his mate and the kidnapper this time spent the night where she was being held captive. The following morning, she was awoken and went through her now familiar routine, up, toilet, exercise, breakfast, and then the kidnapper made Stephanie pose for a photograph that he took with a Polaroid camera, saying that he wanted a keepsake of her. He then gave her dry socks and a change of clothing, including men's underwear that she was made to wear, then placed her back into the box and secured her in, locking her hands to the metal bar above the opening. He then went out for a few hours to make preparations for that day before returning and by just after lunchtime he was off out again. He already had told Stephanie that he had a busy day that day, the day of the ransom drop, and that he would be back to free her by 9pm. 
At about 1.15pm, the kidnappers set off. About 30 minutes before this, Detective Inspector Gwyn Wright, seconded to Operation Kaftan from Warwickshire Constabulary, collected £175,000 cash from the safe at Lloyd House, the West Midlands Police Headquarters. The money had been transferred from Royal Life Estates to the West Midlands Police on Friday the 24th of January, and that afternoon he had exchanged the cheque for this amount for the sum in the cash denominations requested from the Tamworth Bullion Centre. This was then placed into a safe, and over the weekend the serial numbers of each consecutive banknote were recorded on video. That Wednesday afternoon, Detective Inspector Wright retrieved the money from the safe and sorted it into the required denominations, 31 bundles each containing 250 banknotes, some 7,750 notes in total. These were then packed into a sports holdall, which had had a transmitter sewn into the lining of it, which the courier would know all about. Now that morning, Kevin Watts was up early. He'd been unable to sleep the previous evening, stealing himself for the task that he knew he would be undertaking that day. He had agreed expressly to deliver the ransom money to get Stephanie back, and he'd gone so far as to sign a disclaimer saying that he had volunteered himself for the role of ransom courier. Police had spent the past few days briefing him over and over their respective parts in the operation with him, plus he had spent time being coached by psychologist Dr Paul Britton as to how to act and to an extent what to expect. Police already knew that they were dealing with an exceptional criminal that liked to plan things down to the letter, but was not afraid of making police run around in circles. Kevin had to be able to think on his feet and not cave under any pressure and he took some comfort from knowing that he was to be backed up by undercover detectives using sophisticated surveillance and tracking equipment, plus his car had been fitted with a two-way radio and a tracking device. All of the equipment had been tested thoroughly and was working, and the hundred-plus officers from around the country that would be involved in the operation had all been briefed and were ready to go. For his part, Kevin had to carry writing implements and a flashlight and was to obey the kidnapper's instructions to the letter. Any messages or telephone calls he was to receive were to be relayed to police over his radio twice in a loud voice so that the information could be correlated and that vehicles and manpower could be organised and dispatched to give him hopefully total protection. As a precautionary measure, he was then given a bulletproof vest to put on and then all parties involved left counting the minutes until three o'clock. The tension must have been, you must have been able to cut it with a knife, undoubtedly. Now, whenever I have ever read about this bit concerning the case, I think back again to the iconic scene in my favourite movie, Dirty Harry, where Eastwood is ran all over San Francisco with a yellow bag full of money, being sent from pillar to post by crazed killer Scorpio. Best movie of all time, know the script. Pop trivia bit here too concerning Dirty Harry for all you true crime buffs. I'm sure many of you who've seen the movie will know this, but the handwriting on the letter from Scorpio in one of the early scenes in the mayor's office is actually based on the real-life actual handwriting of the Zodiac Killer himself. So Kevin Watts and police were sat there at shipways waiting for the kidnapper's call. The kidnapper's call didn't come at three o'clock, Police rapidly became concerned as to why. Was it a hoax all along, and was Stephanie already dead? Or was this the kidnapper muddying the waters yet again? They were about to find out, for at 3.25pm the telephone rang in the shipway's office. The conversation went as follows. Kevin, hello, Kevin Watts. Caller, have you got it? Kevin, yes I have. Caller. Your mother and father's names are Warren and Betty, and after the end of this message, I will play you a tape in which she mentions it, right? Kevin, okay. Caller, you go to Glossop Station. Kevin, Glossop? Glossop Station? Could you spell that? Caller, G-L-O-S-O-P. Kevin, G-L-O, caller, double S-O-P, west of Manchester. Kevin, okay. Caller. There's a phone box inside the entrance hall. There's only one, and there'll be a further message at 7pm. Kevin, 7pm. Caller, yes, 
It's an hour and a half's journey. I'm in Glossop now and it's sunny. If anything goes wrong, you ring your office. Kevin, ring my office here. Caller, yes. Kevin, but there won't be anybody here, so I'll have to have somebody here. Caller, well they won't know what's happened unless you get there at seven o'clock. Who's coming with you? Kevin, I'll be on my own. I can't take anybody with me. Is Steph okay? Caller, definitely okay. She'll be released tomorrow night, just after 12 o'clock. The caller then played a tape recording of Stephanie's voice down the phone. It was poor quality and she was clearly frightened, but it was undoubtedly her. She simply said, My parents are Betty and Warren Slater. I am frightened, but unharmed. Caller, did you get that? Kevin, yes, wasn't very clear. Caller, seven o'clock. He then hung up. The caller lasted two minutes and although a trace was attempted, it was not from a box on the latest digital exchange system. So just after 4pm, Kevin shook hands with all the officers and was wished the best of luck, then took the hold all full of money, got into his rover car and set off on the 91 mile journey to Glossop. Outside, several police cars set off following him just as a mist was beginning to descend on the area. Now without glorifying anything of the crime, because it's a horrific crime and let's not forget that, the entire scale of the operation planned for the ransom drop has to be marvelled at for its meticulous audacity, its planning and its attention to detail. And because it is so complex, it simply has to be broken down into a manageable narrative. So not long after six o'clock, Kevin had arrived at Glossop and after asking for directions to the railway station, he was there before 7pm waiting for the kidnapper's call. At 7.04pm, the telephone rang and the caller asked for Kevin's vehicle make and registration number, which he gave. He was then told to drive to a telephone box located just past the Norfolk Arms public house in Glossop, where he would find a brown envelope with further instructions inside taped underneath the shelf in the phone box. Kevin immediately left for this phone box and upon reaching it, found the envelope taped underneath as directed. This message taped into the telephone box was the first in a series of several intricate instructions detailing minor roads that the courier was to take, timings that he had to adhere to, and for telephone boxes to look out for. When arriving at each destination, Kevin was to open the boot of his car for exactly 30 seconds each time before entering the telephone box. As, it was warned, at some time on the drop he would be observed. If the phone didn't ring in each box at the allocated time, a message taped underneath the shelf would give further instruction. The first message sent Kevin towards Barnsley to a telephone box near Oxspring, near Sheffield, some 20 miles that he had to cover in 30 minutes. Due to being unfamiliar with the area, plus a thick fog that had descended that had slowed driving visibility and conditions down to a crawl, Kevin arrived late to the telephone box, so without waiting for any telephone call, he instead took the envelope from underneath the shelf in the phone box, shut the boot of his car, and got back in and read where he was being sent next, information which he relayed to police through his two-way radio. In the extreme fog, Kevin was directed to a spot a quarter of a mile away and to a sign marked Public Bridleway. He was to head down here and to take care to turn right a hundred yards down the bridleway, taking the left fork by a farmhouse into a further lane known locally as Black and Green Lane. 150 yards down this lane, there would be a small building on the left hand side and in front of this, a black bag would be on the ground marked by a red and white traffic cone. Kevin was to transfer all of the money from the hold all he was carrying into this new bag and leave the empty bag there, then to wait and move off at exactly 7.47pm. A further message would be inside the bag. But by this time, the surveillance operation had become a fiasco due to an uncontrollable interjection, the weather. It was causing atmospherics with the surveillance equipment. Atmospherics is a great word if you're ever on exercise in the military and you're very fed up, you use it as an excuse for not running round. Sorry sir, I didn't get that message, atmospherics. 
Occasionally, though, they are real, and this night, of all nights, the freezing fog was playing havoc with communications. Not only could surveillance teams closely following Kevin not see, they couldn't communicate with each other clearly either, which is a bit of a bugger when you're getting clues and locations as they come hot from the scene, isn't it? So police following him in a vehicle had soon lost him due to this fog, and they were about to lose radio communications completely with him also. Kevin had indeed found the spot he was being directed to, and there was a new bag there, but it was much later than planned due to this fog, and he transferred the money straight into the bag. He then read the message that was in the bag, which directed him further onwards up the lane to a telephone box three and a half miles away. He relayed this message into the radio, but not knowing that he could not now be heard, and he continued driving up the lane as directed, which by now had become more of a track and had begun to lead into a dark wood. Suddenly, in a break in the fog, the headlights of his car picked up a low brick wall and a traffic cone placed directly in the middle of the track. A large white cardboard notice pinned to it read, Stop. 60 seconds allowed. On wall by four sign. Wood tray. Do not move tray sensor inside. Put money in bag on tray. If buzzer does not sound, leave money there. Remove cone in front of car and go. Money will not be collected until you have left. Kevin Watts complied with this to the letter. He found a wooden tray placed on the brick wall, about two feet by one feet in measurement, and in the top corner of it was a galvanised metal box about the size of a cigarette packet. Now he couldn't hardly see anything due to the fog, but he got the inclination that he had stopped on a bridge of some kind due to the blue metal railings that spanned some of the wall's length. He placed the bag of money on the tray, and then perhaps realising more than ever that evening that once this money had been left, this was the time when his life was most in potential mortal danger. He locked himself into his car, terrified, and drove off. Can you hardly blame him? I would have probably been bricking myself too. Kevin had been told to collect as much evidence left at the scenes as possible, and before setting off, he grabbed the sign and the pins from the cone, and he placed them into the car along with the other ransom communication notes that had been left for him. Driving up the track, he was soon confronted by police officers who managed to relay a message, eventually, that Kevin was safe and well. Police who'd been shadowing him soon found a sign marked shipways that Kevin had missed in the fog that had pointed down towards Blacker Green Lane, and eventually came across the traffic cone that had been placed by the empty bag and a bit further on, the traffic cone placed where the money was to be deposited. But of the money, there was no sign. A fingertip search of the area was made despite the fog, but nothing evidential of note was found, except for a number four that was spray-painted onto the wall, and traces of builder sand on the parapet above the number. There was no sign of any bag whatsoever and Kevin Watts, who was now shadowed by armed police officers from Operation Kaftan, went back to show them exactly where he'd left the money. The tray was gone from the wall, which by torchlight was discovered to be a bridge spanning a disused railway line 60 feet below the Dove Valley Trail. It was nearly 11 o'clock p.m. when the kidnapper returned to where Stephanie was being held. This is two hours later than he'd told her he'd be back. You can only imagine what must have been going through her mind in that situation. Had he been caught and was refusing to say anything and so would leave her to die? Or had he been in an accident and been killed and nobody would know where she was? When he returned, Stephanie was full of questions. Now more than ever, her desire to go home was at fever pitch. As soon as he arrived back, she asked him if everything had gone to plan and that he'd got the money. The kidnapper replied that yes he had and it had gone fine, apart from his mate falling off his motorcycle three times due to the weather conditions, and that they'd encountered a fence that had not been there when they had planned the ransom pickup initially. His mate, the kidnapper claimed, had used a metal detector to check that the money hadn't been marked in any way. He told her he would remove her from the box shortly, 
and then there was a period of a few minutes where there was a lot of sounds of items being moved and shifted, as well as a period of a few minutes of some loud banging and clattering, but eventually Stephanie was removed from her box. Then came the moment Stephanie had been hoping and praying for. The kidnapper told her that she was going home. She was given the clothing that she'd worn on the day of her abduction to dress in, which had been washed and ironed, and then she was walked outside, still blindfolded, to the car that was waiting outside. She was then placed into the passenger seat, covered in a cardigan, and then the kidnapper got into the vehicle and drove off. After they'd been driving for about 20 minutes, the kidnapper pulled up and told Stephanie that he was going to telephone her parents to let them know that she was safe. The telephone box that they'd stopped at was near Gamston, the village that the kidnapper had called from on the day before the ransom drop. The box that they'd found to stop at was out of order though, so the kidnapper got back into the vehicle and continued on the journey. Throughout the journey, Stephanie and her kidnapper chatted as they by now usually would, and he explained to her that had he been caught collecting the money, or had he been killed in a road accident, he had a contingency plan. In his pocket was a note detailing exactly where she was, so she would be rescued at the earliest possible time. He then started to count down the mileage for Stephanie, to let her know just how close to freedom that she was. But throughout the journey, Stephanie had very mixed feelings. Due to what can be perceived as Stockholm Syndrome, she had to an extent begun to trust her captor. She had no choice to, really. I mean, that's totally understandable. She'd been dependent on him solely for the past week. But he had, after all, taken her prisoner and kept her captive against her will. He'd kept her blindfolded and chained for a week, and for whatever his act of feeding her soup or porridge or giving her changes of clothes, whatever, he was still a kidnapper. A kidnapper who had already let slip to Stephanie that he was going to have to cut up her wheelie bin that her body was supposed to go in because he now wasn't going to kill her. And with these thoughts billowing around her mind, like the drawer of getting on a plane to the McCann's, Stephanie was left thinking that she may still yet possibly be murdered. This was fueled because regardless of the abandoned telephone message to her parents, a short time later the car was again stopped in the middle of nowhere, and Stephanie thought, this is it, I'm going to die now. But this time, it was solely for the kidnapper to clean the headlights of the car, as they were so caked in mud. As the car drove, the kidnapper made small talk again with Stephanie, and he began reading down the road signs to let her know just how close they were to her home. He even put the tape of the Beach Boys back on again. When they were close to Great Bar, he began describing features and premises in the area that Stephanie could now use as a mental street map, so she could give the kidnapper directions for the last few hundred yards, and finally the car stopped. Before she left the vehicle, the kidnapper gave Stephanie instructions about how to exit the vehicle. She was to hold her coat in her left hand and open the door with her right hand, stand with her back to the car and keep her eyes closed until he had driven away. His last words to Stephanie before he drove away were, Now remember what I told you. I'm sorry about all this. It's not your fault. Get back to your normal life as soon as possible. You may need counselling. I'm sorry it had to be you. Bit of an understatement there, kidnapper. As she got out of the vehicle, Stephanie waited until she heard the car drive off and then slowly opened her eyes, squinting in the bright light from a street lamp. This was the first light that she'd seen in eight days. Disorientated, it took Stephanie a little time to realise where she was and she soon came to recognise the street she was on as Stella Grove. She'd been dropped off right outside the home of the fantastically named Purvis Barnaby, who was up at that time watching a film on TV when he heard a car outside his house. As fortune would have it, Purvis had been a car sprayer for 15 years, and he noticed a woman get out of what he recognised as a British Leyland Austin Metro car, vermilion red in colour, which apparently appears orange, I know very much so because my mum used to have one many years ago and it was a right shed, really was. Thinking she was drunk, he watched as the woman staggered along the street before going out of sight. Stephanie carried on, turned into Newton Gardens and finally hammered on a door mid-row. 
Although Purvis didn't realise it at that time, its significance was realised the following day when news of the kidnapping broke and he became a crucial witness because he'd seen the kidnapper's car. It was well after midnight and Detective Inspector Adrian Bowers, the Slater's liaison officer, opened the door to a frenzied banging and ringing of the doorbell to reveal Stephanie there on the doorstep. It was a marvellous moment for all concerned. Stephanie was alive and home safely. Her clothes were retained for forensic examination and she was rushed to the Priory Hospital for a medical examination. Apart from disorientation and a few minor cuts and bruises, the main thing was that Stephanie's eyes were found to be very sensitive to light, which is the result of being blindfolded for so long. However, the examining physician was confident that there was no permanent damage to them, and as she was understandably exhausted, she was given a sedative and allowed to sleep at the hospital before the debriefing began. There was more to be revealed, but not until much, much later. Meanwhile, the scene of the ransom drop was guarded overnight, and at first light, a fingertip search of the area on the Dove Valley Trail began. Traces of builder's sand were found on the parapet of the bridge, along with a wooden tray and length of washing line that had been used to pull the tray down to the waiting kidnapper, which was found discarded below the bridge. At 6am that Thursday morning, the press embargo that had been placed on the kidnapping was lifted, and a few hours later, a televised press conference was held. This caused some criticism of West Midlands Police from the press, who missed the opportunity to get the story out very early that day, when the embargo could have been lifted as early as 1am, by which time Stephanie was home safely and under police guard. West Midlands Chief Constable Ron Hadfield told the assembled press as much as he could concerning the kidnapping, the police operation and the ransom drop, and that he was 99% sure that the kidnapper of Stephanie Slater was the same man who had kidnapped and murdered Julie Dart and had attempted to blackmail British Rail. Following the press conference, journalists descended on the scene of the ransom drop immediately and the Slater family were besieged with press all trying to get exclusive rights to their story. Reporters also camped outside Milgarth Police Station in Leeds as it was decided that as the origins of the inquiry had begun in Leeds, West Yorkshire Police would be given overall charge of both the Julie Dart and Stephanie Slater investigations that had now been officially linked. Over the next few days, Stephanie went through 19 sessions of debriefing with police and managed to tell them as much as she could recollect about every moment of her ordeal, from first meeting Mr Southwall at Turnbury Road to being released over a week later, the details that have been recapped here. She proved to have excellent recall of details and estimated that the journey back to Birmingham had taken about 90 minutes to drive from where she was being held from setting off to being dropped at the street near her mum and dad's. As the kidnapper had read off road signs and specific distances to her, police were able to pinpoint part of the exact route that they'd taken back by contacting and checking where road signs were in proximity to that, and therefore they could narrow down the possible areas that she'd been held in to a smaller, although still vast area. Stephanie helped create a very good artist's impression of the kidnapper, an impression that, if you're familiar with British crime, I feel has become an iconic one by now, certainly one I'm very familiar with anyway. Stephanie was satisfied that this sketch was a great likeness, and when it was shown to the other staff at Shipways, the two women who had seen Southwall, they agreed. Stephanie had also described her kidnapper as wearing a distinct duffel-type coat that had a badge on the breast pocket, one that contained a motif that she believed resembled a blue steam train similar to Thomas the Tank Engine. By the 4th of February, the artist's impressions of the man, details of the train motif badge, and details of the possible make and colour car that the kidnapper drove were all over the front pages of the national press. The Sun newspaper had won the rights to Stephanie's exclusive story, having paid a sum believed to be between 80,000 to 85,000 pounds for these, 
and the now defunct News of the World newspaper had also offered a £175,000 reward for information leading to the kidnapper's arrest. Stephanie's kidnapper had of course also read these newspapers. He was shocked and angry when he saw the artist's impression of him staring back at him from the front pages because it was strikingly like him. He believed that his plan had been foolproof and that he'd covered every angle, he'd taken every step necessary to prevent his identification and he'd thought of every possible pitfall. Yes, he was £175,000 better off and the majority of that was safely hidden away. But here he was, seeing a striking likeness to himself on the front pages of every newspaper, and reading that his make and colour of car had been identified, even details about him down to the train motif badge that was on his jacket pocket that he was wearing at the exact time that he saw these newspaper headlines. This shook him badly, and he knew it was time to try to throw police off his tail. After sitting down and thinking about what he could and had to do, he believed he'd come up with a solution. He sat down at his word processor and began to type. What he had no way of realising as he typed is that he would have just 17 days of freedom left. And this is a bit cryptic of me, I know, but what was to arguably lead to his identification, the decisive bit, was tenuously down to a simple clothes peg or a lack of one. And that is where we shall leave the story for now, for in the next and concluding part of this trilogy, all will be explained, I promise. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, and because it's such a complex tale, as I've said, I hope also that you'll appreciate why a trilogy of episodes was necessary when you hear next week's conclusion. I'll be back to finish this tale on Truer Crime Thursday next week, and I look forward to you all joining me then. Thanks very much for joining me today all. This is Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast, wishing you safe times and I shall speak to you soon. Goodbye for now.